Section one of the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume One. Message from the Deep Sea, by Dr. John Jones Pitcairn and R. Austin Freeman. Part One. The Whitechapel Road, though redeemed by scattered relics of a more picturesque past, from the utter desolation of its neighbour the Commercial Road, is hardly a gay thoroughfare, especially at its eastern end, where its sordid modernity seems to reflect the colourless lives of its inhabitants, does the grey and dreary length depress the spirits of the wayfarer. But the longest and dullest road can be made delightful by sprightly discourse seasoned with wit and wisdom, and so it was that as I walked westward by the side of my friend John Thorndyke, a long, monotonous road seemed all too short. We had been to the London Hospital to see a remarkable case of acromegaly, and as we returned, we discussed this curious affliction and the allied condition of gigantism in all their bearings from the origin of the Gibson chin to the physique of Og, King of Bashan. It would have been interesting, Thorndyke remarked, as we passed up Aldgate High Street, to have put one's finger into His Majesty's pituitary fossa, after his decease, of course. By the way, here is Harrow Alley, you remember Defoe's description of the dead cart waiting out here and the ghastly procession coming down the alley. He took my arm and led me up the narrow thoroughfare as far as the sharp turn by the star and still public house where we turned to look back. I never passed this place, he said musingly, but I seemed to hear the clang of the bell and the dismal cry of the carter. He broke off abruptly. Two figures had suddenly appeared framed in the archway and now advanced at headlong speed. One who led was a stout middle-aged Jewess, very breathless and dishevelled. The other was a well-dressed young man, hardly less agitated than his companion. As they approached, the young man suddenly recognised my colleague and accosted him in agitated tones. "'I've just been sent for to a case of murder or suicide. Would you mind looking at it for me, sir? It's my first case, and I feel rather nervous.' Here the woman darted back and plucked the young doctor by the arm. "'Hurry, hurry!' she exclaimed. "'Don't stop to talk!' Her face was as white as lard and shiny with sweat. Her lips twitched, her hands shook, and she stared with the eyes of a frightened child. "'Of course I will come, Hart,' said Thorndyke. And turning back, we followed the woman as she elbowed her way frantically among the foot-passengers. "'Have you started in practice here?' Thorndyke asked as we hurried along. "'No, sir,' replied Dr. Hart. "'I am an assistant. My principal is the police sergeant, but he is out just now. It's very good of you to come with me, sir.' "'Tut-tut,' rejoined Thorndyke. I am just coming to see that you do credit to my teaching. That looks like the house. We had followed our guide into a side street, halfway down which we could see a knot of people clustered around a doorway. They watched us as we approached and drew aside to let us enter. The woman whom we were following rushed into the passage with the same headlong haste with which she had traversed the streets and so up the stairs. But as she neared the top of the flight, she slowed down suddenly and began to creep up on tiptoe with noiseless and hesitating steps. On the landing she turned to face us, and pointing a shaking forefinger at the door at the back of the room, whispered almost inaudibly, "'She's in there,' and then sank half-fainting on the bottom stair of the next flight. I laid my hand on the knob of the door and looked back at Thorndyke. He was coming slowly up the stairs, closely scrutinising floor, walls and handrail as he came. When he reached the landing I turned the handle and we entered the room together, closing the door after us. The blind was still down, and in the dim, uncertain light nothing out of the common was, at first, to be seen. The shabby little room looked trim and orderly enough, save for a heap of cast-off feminine clothing piled on a chair. The bed appeared undisturbed except by the half-seen shape of its occupant, and the quiet face, dimly visible in the shadowy corner, might have been that of a sleeper but for its utter stillness and the dark stain on the pillow by its side. Dr. Hart stole on tiptoe to the bedside, while Thorndyke drew up the blind. 
and as the garish daylight poured into the room the young surgeon fell back with a gasp of horror good god he exclaimed poor creature but this is a frightful thing sir the light streamed down upon the white face of a handsome girl of twenty-five a face peaceful placid and beautiful with the austere and almost unearthly beauty of the youthful dead the lips were slightly parted the eyes half closed and drowsy shaded with sweeping lashes and a wealth of dark hair in massive plaits served as a foil to the translucent skin our friend had drawn back the bedclothes a few inches and now there was revealed beneath the comely face so serene and inscrutable and yet so dreadful in its fixity and waxen pallor a horrible yawning wound that almost divided the shapely neck thorndyke looked down with stern pity at the plump white face it was savagely done said he and yet mercifully by reason of its very savagery she must have died without waking the brute exclaimed hart clenching his fists and turning crimson with wrath the infernal cowardly beast he shall hang by god he shall hang in his fury the young fellow shook his fists in the air even as the moisture welled up in his eyes thorndyke touched him on the shoulder that is what we are here for hart said he get out your notebook and with this he bent down over the dead girl at the friendly reproof the young surgeon pulled himself together and with open notebook commenced his investigation while i at thorndyke's request occupied myself in making a plan of the room with a description of its contents and their arrangements but this occupation did not prevent me from keeping an eye on thorndyke's movements and presently i suspended my labours to watch him as with his pocket-knife he scraped together some objects that he had found on the pillow what do you make of this he asked as i stepped over to his side he pointed with the blade to a tiny heap of what looked like silver sand and as i looked more closely i saw that similar particles were sprinkled on the other parts of the pillow silver sand i exclaimed i don't understand at all how it can have got there do you thorndyke shook his head we will consider the explanation later was his reply he had produced from his pocket a small metal box which he always carried and which contained such requisites as cover slips capillary tubes moulding wax and other diagnostic materials he now took from it a seed envelope into which he neatly shoveled a little pinch of sand with his knife he had closed the envelope and was writing a pencil description on the outside when we were startled by a cry from hart good god sir look at this it was done by a woman he had drawn back the bedclothes and was staring aghast at the dead girl's left hand it held a thin tress of long red hair thorndyke hastily pocketed his specimen and stepping around the little bedside table bent over the hand with knitted brows it was closed though not tightly clenched and when an attempt was made to gently separate the fingers they were found to be as rigid as the fingers of a wooden hand thorndyke stooped yet more closely and taking out his lens scrutinized the wisp of hair throughout its entire length there is more here than meets the eye at first glance he remarked what say you hart he held out his lens to his quondam pupil who was about to take it from him when the door opened and three men entered one was a police inspector the second appeared to be a plain-clothes officer while the third was evidently the divisional surgeon friends of yours hart inquired the latter regarding us with some disfavour thorndyke gave a brief explanation of our presence to which the newcomer rejoined well sir your locus stand i here is a matter for the inspector my assistant was not authorised to call in outsiders you needn't wait hart with this he proceeded to his inspection while thorndyke withdrew the pocket thermometer that he had slipped under the body and took the reading the inspector however was not disposed to exercise the prerogative at which the surgeon had hinted for an expert has his uses how long should you say she'd been dead sir he asked affably about ten hours replied thorndyke the inspector and the detective simultaneously looked at their watches that fixes it at two o'clock this morning said the former what's that sir the surgeon was pointing to the wisp of hair in the dead girl's hand 
"'My word!' exclaimed the inspector. "'A woman, eh? She must be a tough customer. This looks like a soft job for you, sergeant.' "'Yes,' said the detective. "'That accounts for that box with the hassock on it at the head of the bed. She had to stand on them to reach over, but she couldn't have been very tall.' "'She must have been mighty strong, though,' said the inspector. "'Why, she has nearly cut the poor wench's head off!' He moved around to the head of the bed, and stooping over, peered down at the gaping wound. Suddenly he began to draw his hand over the pillow, and then to rub his fingers together. "'Why?' he exclaimed. "'There's sand on the pillow! Silver sand! Now, how can that have come here?' The surgeon and the detective both came around to verify this discovery, and an earnest consultation took place as to its meaning. "'Did you notice it, sir?' the inspector asked Thorndyke. "'Yes.' replied the latter. "'It's an unaccountable thing, isn't it?' "'I don't know that it is, either,' said the detective. He ran over to the washstand, and then uttered a grunt of satisfaction. "'It's quite a simple matter, after all, you see,' he said, glancing complacently at my colleague. "'There's a ball of sand soap on the washstand, and the basin is full of blood-stained water. You see, she must have washed the blood off her hands, and off the knife, too. A pretty cool customer she must be. And then she used the sand soap. Then while she was drying her hands, she must have stood over the head of the bed and let the sand fall on the pillow. I think that's clear enough.' "'Admirably clear,' said Thorndyke. "'And what do you suppose was the sequence of events?' The gratified detective glanced around the room. "'I take it,' said he, "'that the deceased read herself to sleep. There is a book on the table by the bed, and a candlestick with nothing in it but a bit of burnt wick at the bottom of the socket. I imagine that the woman came in quietly, lit the gas, put the box and the hassock at the bedhead, stood on them, and cut her victim's throat. Deceased must have waked up and clutched the murderess's hair, though there doesn't seem to have been much of a struggle, but no doubt she died almost at once.' Then the murderess washed her hands, cleaned the knife, tied up the bed a bit, and went away. That's about how things happened, I think. But how she got in without anyone hearing, and how she got out, and where she went to, are the things that we've got to find out. Perhaps, said the surgeon, drawing the bedclothes over the corpse, we had better have the landlady in and make a few inquiries. He glanced significantly at Thorndyke, and the inspector coughed behind his hand. My colleague, however, chose to be obtuse to these hints. Opening the door, he turned the key backwards and forwards several times, drew it out, examined it narrowly, and replaced it. "'The landlady is outside on the landing,' he remarked, holding the door open. Thereupon the inspector went out, and we all followed to hear the results of his inquiries. "'Now, Mrs. Goldstein,' said the officer, opening his notebook, "'I want you to tell us all that you know about this affair and about the girl herself. What was her name?' The landlady, who had been joined by a white-faced, tremulous man, wiped her eyes and replied in a shaky voice, "'Her name, poor child, was Minna Adler. She was a German. She came from Bremen about two years ago.' She had no friends in England, no relatives, I mean. She was a waitress at a restaurant in Fenchurch Street, and a good, quiet, hard-working girl. When did you discover what had happened? About eleven o'clock. I thought she had gone to work as usual, but my husband noticed from the backyard that her blind was still down. So I went up and knocked, and when I got no answer, I opened the door and went in. And then I saw— Here the poor soul, overcome by the dreadful recollection, burst into hysterical sobs. Her door was unlocked then. Did she usually lock it? "'I think so,' sobbed Mrs. Goldstein. "'The key was always inside.' "'And the street door? Was that secure when you came down this morning?' "'It was shut. We don't bolt it, because some of the lodgers come home rather late. "'And now tell us, had she any enemies? Was there anyone who had a grudge against her?' "'No, no, poor child. Why should anyone have a grudge against her? "'No, she had no quarrel, no real quarrel, with anyone. Not even Miriam.' "'Miriam?' inquired the inspector. "'Who was she?' "'Oh, that was nothing.' interposed the man hastily. "'That was not a quarrel. Just a little unpleasantness, I suppose, Mr. Goldstein,' suggested the inspector. "'Just a little foolishness about a young man,' said Mr. Goldstein. "'That was all. Miriam was a little jealous, but it was nothing. No, no, of course. We all know that young women are apt to—' A soft footstep had been for some time audible slowly descending the stair above, 
and at this moment a turn of the staircase brought the newcomer into view and at that vision the inspector stopped short as if petrified and a tense startled silence fell upon us all down the remaining stairs there advanced towards us a young woman powerful but short wild-eyed dishevelled horror-stricken and of a ghastly pallor and her hair was a fiery red stock still and speechless we all stood as this apparition came slowly towards us but suddenly the detective slipped back into the room closing the door after him to reappear a few moments later holding a small paper packet which after a quick glance at the inspector he placed in his breast pocket this is my daughter miriam that we spoke about gentlemen said mr goldstein miriam those are the doctors and the police the girl looked at us from one to the other y you have seen her then she said in a strange muffled voice and added she isn't dead is she not really dead the question was asked in a tone at once coaxing and despairing such as a distracted mother might use over the corpse of her child it filled me with vague discomfort and unconsciously i looked round towards thorndyke to my surprise he had vanished noiselessly backing towards the head of the stairs where i could command a view of the hall or passage i looked down and saw him in the act of reaching up to a shelf behind the street door he caught my eye and beckoned whereupon i crept away unnoticed by the party on the landing when i reached the hall he was wrapping up three small objects each in a separate cigarette paper and i noticed that he handled them with more than ordinary tenderness we didn't want to see that poor devil of a girl arrested said he as he deposited the three packets gingerly in his pocket-box let us be off he opened the door noiselessly and stood for a moment turning the latch backwards and forwards and closely examining its bolt i glanced up at the shelf behind the door on it were two flat china candlesticks in one of which i had happened to notice as we came in a short end of candle lying on a tray and i now looked to see if that was what thorndyke had annexed but it was still there i followed my colleague out into the street and for some time we walked on without speaking you guessed what the sergeant had in that paper of course said thorndyke at length yes it was the hair from the dead woman's hand and i thought he had much better have left it there undoubtedly but that is the way in which well-meaning policemen destroy valuable evidence not that it matters much in this particular instance but it might have been a fatal mistake do you intend to take any active part in this case i asked that depends on the circumstances i have collected some evidence but what it is worth i don't yet know neither do i know whether the police have observed the same set of facts but i need not say that i shall do anything that seems necessary to assist the authorities that is a matter of common citizenship the inroads made upon our time by the morning's adventures made it necessary that we should go each about his respective business without delay so after a perfunctory lunch at a tea-shop we separated and i did not see my colleague again until the day's work was finished and i turned into our chambers just before dinner-time here i found thorndyke seated at the table and evidently full of business a microscope stood close by with a condenser throwing a spot of light onto a pinch of powder that had been sprinkled onto the slide his collecting-box lay open before him and he was engaged rather mysteriously in squeezing a thick white cement from a tube onto three little pieces of moulding wax useful stuff this fortifix he remarked it makes excellent casts and saves the trouble and mess of mixing plaster which is a consideration for small work like this by the way if you want to know what was on that poor girl's pillow just take a peep through the microscope it is a rather pretty specimen i stepped across and applied my eye to the instrument the specimen was indeed pretty in more than a technical sense mingled with crystalline grains of quartz glassy spicules and water-worn fragments of coral were a number of lovely little shells some of the texture of fine porcelain others like blown venetian glass these are foraminifera i exclaimed yes then it is not silver sand after all certainly not but what is it then thorndyke smiled it is a message to us from the deep sea jervis from the floor of the eastern mediterranean and can you read the message i think i can he replied but i shall know soon i hope 
I looked down at the microscope again and wondered what message these tiny shells had conveyed to my friend. Deep sea sand on a dead woman's pillow. What could be more incongruous? What possible connection could there be between this sordid crime in the east of London and the deep bed of the tideless sea? Meanwhile, Thorndyke squeezed out more cement onto the three little pieces of moulding wax, which I suspected to be the objects that I had seen him wrapping up with such care in the hall of the Goldstein's house. Then laying one of them down on a glass slide, with its cemented side uppermost, he stood the other two upright on either side of it. Finally, he squeezed out a fresh load of the thick cement, apparently to bind the three objects together, and carried the slide very carefully to a cupboard, where he deposited it, together with the envelope containing the sand and the slide from the stage of the microscope. He was just locking the cupboard, when a sharp rat-tat on our knocker sent him hurriedly to the door. A messenger boy standing on the threshold held out a dirty envelope. "'Mr. Goldstein kept me an awful long time, sir,' said he. "'I haven't been loitering.' Thorndyke took the envelope over to the gaslight, and, opening it, drew forth a sheet of paper, which he scanned quickly and almost eagerly. And though his face remained inscrutable as a mask of stone, I felt a conviction that the paper had told him something that he wished to know. The boy having been sent on his way rejoicing, Thorndyke turned to the bookshelves, along which he ran his eye thoughtfully, until it alighted on a shabbily bound volume near one end. This he reached down, and as he laid it open on the table I glanced at it, and was surprised to observe that it was a bilingual work, the opposite pages being apparently in Russian and Hebrew. "'The Old Testament, in Russian and Yiddish,' he remarked, noting my surprise. "'I am going to get Poulton to photograph a couple of specimen pages. Is that the postman or a visitor?' It turned out to be the postman and as Thorndyke extracted from the letter-box an official blue envelope, he glanced significantly at me. "'This answers your question, I think, Jervis,' said he. "'Yes, coroner's subpoena, and a very civil letter. Sorry to trouble you, but I had no choice under the circumstances. Of course he hadn't. Dr. Davidson has arranged to make the autopsy tomorrow at 4 p.m., and I should be glad if you could be present. The mortuary is in Barker Street next to the school. Well, we must go, I suppose, so Davidson will probably resent it.' He took up the testament and went off with it to the laboratory. We lunched at our chambers on the following day, and after the meal drew up our chairs to the fire and lit our pipes. Thorndyke was evidently preoccupied, for he laid his open notebook on his knee, and gazing meditatively into the fire, made occasional entries with his pencil, as though he were arranging the points of an argument. Assuming that the Aldgate murder was the subject of his cogitations, I ventured to ask, "'Have you any material evidence to offer the coroner?' He closed his notebook and put it away. "'The evidence that I have,' he said, "'is material and important.' but it is disjointed and rather inconclusive. If I can join it up into a coherent whole, which I hope to do before we reach the court, it will be very important indeed. But here is my invaluable familiar with the instruments of research. He turned with a smile towards Polton, who had just entered the room, and master and man exchanged a friendly glance of mutual appreciation. The relations of Thorndyke and his assistant were a constant delight to me. On the one side service, loyal and whole-hearted, on the other, frank and full recognition. I should think those will do, sir said Polton, handing his principal a small cardboard box, such as playing cards are carried in. Thorndyke pulled off the lid, and I then saw that the box was fitted internally with grooves for plates, and contained two mounted photographs. The latter were very singular productions indeed. They were copies each of a page of the testament, one in Russian, the other Yiddish, but the lettering appeared white on a black ground, of which it occupied only quite a small space in the middle, leaving a broad black margin. Each photograph was mounted on a stiff card, and each card had a duplicate photograph pasted on the back. Thorndyke exhibited them to me with a provoking smile, holding them daintily by their edges, before he slid them back into the grooves of their box. "'We are making a little digression into philology, you see,' he remarked as he pocketed the box. "'But we must be off now. We shall keep Davidson waiting. Thank you, Polton.' The district railway carried us swiftly eastward, and we emerged from Algate Station a full half-hour before we were due. Nevertheless, Thorndyke stepped out briskly, but instead of making directly for the mortuary, 
he strayed off unaccountably into mansell street scanning the numbers of houses as he went a row of old houses picturesque but grimy on our right seemed especially to attract him and he slowed down as we approached them there is a quaint survival jervis he remarked pointing to a crudely painted wooden effigy of an indian standing on a bracket at the door of a small old-fashioned tobacconist's shop we halted to look at the little image and at that moment a side door opened and a woman came out on to the doorstep where she stood gazing up and down at the street thorndyke immediately crossed the pavement and addressed her apparently with some question for i heard her answer presently a quarter past six is his time sir and he is generally punctual to the minute thank you said thorndyke i'll bear that in mind and lifting his hat he walked on briskly turning presently up a side street which brought us out into aldgate it was now but five minutes to four so we strode off quickly to keep our tryst at the mortuary but although we arrived at the gate as the hour was striking when we entered the building we found dr davidson hanging up his apron and preparing to depart sorry i couldn't wait for you he said with no great show of sincerity but a post-mortem is a mere farce in a case like this you have seen all that there was to see however there is the body hart hasn't closed it up yet with this and a curt good afternoon he departed i must apologize for dr davidson sir said hart looking up with a vexed face from the desk at which he was writing out his notes you needn't said thorndyke you didn't supply him with manners and don't let me disturb you i only want to verify one or two points accepting the hint hart and i remained at the desk while thorndyke removing his hat advanced to the long slate table and bent over its burden of pitiful tragedy for some time he remained motionless running his eye gravely over the corpse in search no doubt of bruises and indications of a struggle then he stooped and narrowly examined the wound especially at its commencement and end suddenly he drew nearer peering intently as if something had attracted his attention and having taken out a lens fetched a small sponge with which he dried an exposed process of the spine holding his lens before the dried spot he again scrutinized it closely and then with a scalpel and forceps detached some object which he carefully washed and then once more examined through his lens as it lay in the palm of his hand finally as i expected he brought forth his collecting box took from it a seed envelope into which he dropped the object evidently something quite small closed up the envelope wrote on the outside of it and replaced it in the box i think i have seen all that i wanted to see he said as he pocketed the box and took up his hat we shall meet to-morrow morning at the inquest he shook hands with hart and we went out into the relatively pure air on one pretext or another thorndyke lingered about the neighbourhood of aldgate until a church bell struck six when he bent his steps towards harrow alley through the narrow winding passage he walked slowly and with a thoughtful mien along little somerset street and out into mansell street until just on the stroke of a quarter past we found ourselves opposite the little tobacconist's shop thorndyke glanced at his watch and halted looking keenly up the street a moment later he hastily took from his pocket the cardboard box from which he extracted the two mounted photographs which had puzzled me so much they now seemed to puzzle thorndyke equally to judge by his expression for he held them close to his eyes scrutinizing them with an anxious frown and backing by degrees into the doorway at the side of the tobacconists at this moment i became aware of a man who as he approached seemed to eye my friend with some curiosity and more disfavour a very short burly young man apparently a foreign jew whose face naturally sinister and unprepossessing was further disfigured by the marks of smallpox excuse me he said brusquely pushing past thorndyke i live here i'm sorry responded thorndyke he moved aside and then suddenly asked by the way i suppose you do not by any chance understand yiddish why do you ask the newcomer demanded gruffly because i have just had these two photographs of lettering given to me one is in greek i think and one in yiddish but i have forgotten which is which he held out the two cards to the stranger who took them from him and looked at them with scowling curiosity this one is yiddish said he raising his right hand and this other is russian not greek he held out the two cards to thorndyke who took them from him holding them carefully by the edges as before 
i am greatly obliged to you for your kind assistance said thorndyke but before he had time to finish his thanks the man had entered by means of his latch-key and slammed the door thorndyke carefully slid the photographs back into their grooves replaced the box in his pocket and made an entry in his notebook that said he finishes my labours with the exception of a small experiment which i can perform at home by the way i picked up a morsel of evidence that davidson had overlooked he will be annoyed and i am not very fond of scoring off a colleague but he is too uncivil for me to communicate with the coroner's subpoena had named ten o'clock as the hour at which thorndyke was to attend to give evidence but a consultation with a well-known solicitor so far interfered with his plans that we were a quarter of an hour late in starting from the temple my friend was evidently in excellent spirits though silent and preoccupied from which i inferred that he was satisfied with the results of his labours but as i sat by his side in the hansom i forbore to question him not from mere unselfishness but rather from the desire to hear his evidence for the first time in conjunction with that of the other witnesses the room in which the inquest was held formed part of a school adjoining the mortuary its vacant bareness was on this occasion enlivened by a long baize-covered table at the head of which sat the coroner while one side was occupied by the jury and i was glad to observe that the latter consisted for the most part of genuine working men instead of the solid-faced truculent professional jurymen who so often grace these tribunals a row of chairs accommodated the witnesses a corner of the table was allotted to the accused woman's solicitor a smart dapper gentleman in a gold pince-nez a portion of one side to the reporters and several ranks of benches were occupied by miscellaneous assembly representing the public there were one or two persons present whom i was somewhat surprised to see there was for instance our pockmark acquaintance of mansell street who greeted us with a stare of hostile surprise and there was superintendent miller of scotland yard in whose manner i seemed to detect some kind of private understanding with thorndyke but i had little time to look about me for when we arrived the proceedings had already commenced mrs goldstein the first witness was finishing her recital of the circumstances under which the crime was discovered and as she retired weeping hysterically she was followed by looks of commiseration from the sympathetic jurymen End of message from the deep sea by dr john jones pitcairn and r austin freeman part one